Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, so this week we are talking about foolish controversies and divisions. Some of you have lived long enough to have seen some foolish things that have split churches in the past. What examples might you refer to? What things have split churches? Carl Montank is grinning from ear to ear. Carl, do you have an example? Carpet color. Okay, carpet color. Pride. The root cause. Yes, what else? Music. Music. Yes, music can be divisive. The thing that we use to worship God. What? It's divisive? What's that about? Yes. Big things, yes. Yes. Controversy over homosexuality and what that means to us as a church. Darren, you had something? Was this foolish examples or examples? Foolish examples. Any, any examples? Doctrine. Doctrine. There are good things that divide. There are bad things that divide. Um, I'm giving, going to give you a few quick examples. Argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. There's a verse in the Bible that says it can't be more than an inch and a half longer than the senior pastor's beard. Uh, a deacon accusing another deacon of uh, sending an anonymous letter, and they had a fight in the church parking lot. A church argument, a vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. I think that's a timely argument, don't you? <clears throat> a fight over which picture of Jesus to use in the foyer. Who took the picture? That's what I want to know. Was it color? Was it black and white? I, I don't know. Uh, a business meeting, arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to dissolve the matter. It was a very heated argument. Frankly, I think the fight was wacky. Weed, whacker. An argument over whether or not to have gluten-free communion bread. I thought gluttony was a sin, but what do I know? A fight over where the church piano bench would be. Uh, Holy Creek Baptist Church in Chatsworth, Georgia, had a bench that you see pictured there that stood behind the uh, 1923 piano uh, for decades. And um, there was an argument about where in the church building it should be. And it split the church. They actually ended up having two services, and that seat was moved for each of the different services by a third party. Honest. Church foyer carpet. What was mentioned earlier, the one in the bottom right-hand corner. A picture of two. There, were, there was an argument about what color church carpet to put in the foyer. Uh, Schism is a division or split within the church. It occurs in a com- congregation or domination when a faction is formed on a basis of something other than the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is distinguished from heresy, false teaching about doctrine. While heresies can and often do lead to schism, uh, many schisms in the most local church do not involve heresy. They usually erupt from some quarrel over opinions, Romans 14, 1, in matters not essential to the faith. Now, we can differ on many things. We can differ on health care, politicians, best schooling for our children. Any attempt to base Christian unity upon such things, however, is an illegitimate and schismatic attempt. Our consumer preferences, cultural preferences, should not have bearing. We are warned in God's word to avoid foolish controversies. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. And the church at Corinth 
had many divisions. Now, if you go to uh, your scriptures, 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, that's where we are today. Now, the passage on divisions also increases and expands to chapter 3 through chapter 4 as well. But we're really going to focus on the 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 10 through 17 passage. I'll read that. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren. By the way, do you notice how Paul is tenderly calling them brethren? You know, he's not calling them, you idiots. He's not being, you know, he's, he's, he's recognizing that these people are Christian people. Concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one could say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so the cross of Christ would not be made void. So, what specific situation caused disharmony in the church at Corinth? Divisions and factions concerning leaders, right? What other divisions were there besides the leadership? Do you remember? There were a bunch of problems that the Corinthians wrestled with. Who were they were baptized by? Again, leadership, right? And affections for leaders. And we, we know and we all appreciate that those who were instrumental in bringing us to the faith, they have a dear part of our heart. We're greatly appreciative of that. They also were divided over things like the, uh, uh, the contribution to the saints. They were divided over uh, legal issues. They were divided over uh, worship matters, the use of gifts. There were a number of things. We're going to focus uh, on the divisions. And really, <clears throat> the key thing we're going to be focusing on today at the divisions of Corinth are the exaltation of the individuals, the exaltation of individuals, hero worships. There was an unhealthy view of God's gifts. Their personal preferences for particular teachers led to quarreling and brought division among the congregation. Paul heard from Chloe's people that there was such thing. Now, interesting to know, in the study of the letters to the Corinthian church, there is never any indication that these individuals... These individual men, Paul, Apollos, Peter, started or created the division. It was not as if they were seeking to generate rival factions within the body. All right, so bear that in mind as we continue. Paul argued that if they'd only looked to Jesus as their primary teacher and regarded the apostles and teachers as Christ's servants... The Corinthians would not have clashed 
over their preferences for certain apostles and teachers. By honoring the apostles and teachers of the church too highly, they lost sight of Christ, who far outshined all others. Unable to fully break with the culture from which it came, the church at Corinth was exceptionally factional, showing its carnality and immaturity. Remember we talked about how Corinth was the center of the Isthmus Games, and they had all of these games that were like the Olympic Games? Well, one of the events was actually competition in rhetoric, a speech competition. And so these people of that day were looking for the sound bites from Sarah Sanders and how she just zinged those Democrats. And boy, that's... Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's not what they were doing. (laughs) But really, they're very much like we are. And we can be divided over issues like that based on personal preferences and issues that can creep into the church. We're not too far unlike the church at Corinth. What was happening in the church of Corinth is that some people were beginning to polarize behind their favorite teacher. They isolated particular qualifications or strengths of their favorite teacher and began to brag about them. They elevated those characteristics to the point where they derived some sense of superiority from claiming this particular teacher as their own. This is really relevant today. And there is a disunity that can be created by vicarious ego boosting. There's a great danger of taking pride in knowing and being associated with important people. Most of us feel like nobody's in a world where the media is constantly holding up the desirability of being well-known. Teenagers put posters up on their walls. We listen to our favorite radio programs or TV programs. Some of us, you know, have gone to various churches because of a particular We get on their mailing lists, you know, we buy all their books. And we become so familiar with someone's teaching and ways of doing, we begin to idealize them and even absolutize them. Captain America is the best. (laughs) Spider-Man is the best. But it's a real thing, isn't it? I have before you... Martin Luther and Al Mohler and Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Yes, they are bobbleheads. And while I have stolen Al Mohler from Nate Van Cleve, there were only 400 made. And I love Al Mohler. No. He's not getting it back. And he knew, and he knew about this. But we all have heroes of the faith. And we could have an argument, like Spurgeon could you know, argue against Martin Luther that he didn't leave the Catholic Church and he kept clinging to credo baptism, uh, pedo baptism, baptizing infants, and how he really didn't separate the church from the state. And, you know, we could have arguments about that. And we could. We could go on and on with that. There's an inordinate hero worship that can happen, you know. And we get a vicarious thrill by being identified with these folks. There's also 
a disunity caused by an anti-authoritarian cynicism. So that someone hears that Al Mohler's one of my favorites, and all of a sudden they're nitpicking at Al Mohler. It's like, okay, well, that, that can be a source of pride too. You know, where, <clears throat> where people can be more critical and, you know, boast about their independence and their independence thinking. There are two forms of pride in the church when it comes to Christian leadership. One wants to ride the coattail of a leader to various kinds of vicarious glory, and the other is one that's anti-authoritarian, suspicious, skeptical, and a cynical attitude that wants to make clear to everybody that's not part of the herd. Both tend to destroy the unity of the church. Now, we're going to get into one of the other problems in the Corinthian church, which is a problem in our society, and that regarding authority... We'll be getting into that in later lessons. But they were also involved in lawsuits, as you're aware, and a disregard for others that impacted the worship of the church. The Lord's table we're celebrating today became a source of division and controversy because people were not caring for others. Well, what were the problems created by those divisions? We've talked about the divisions. What practical issues erupted from those divisions. What would you see as happening? What would creep in? How would that impact the practical life of a fellowship, of a church? Say it again? Yeah. Some people can doubt. You know, if this is what the Christian church is about, then mm, is the gospel true? Is it powerful? No. Some people can really, you know, weak believers can really be shaken up by that. What else? Insecurity. I'm sorry? Insecurity. Insecurity. Insecurity on the part of these weak believers, yeah. One sin leads to another sin, leads to another sin. It can be multiplied. One sin can lead to another sin. And, you know, I don't react well to somebody else's sin. And so, you know, it can be multiplied. Schismatic behavior can cause unnecessary tension. In local church, in the case of the Corinth, in the church of Corinth, their personal preference for particular teachers led to quarreling and brought division to the congregation. Secondly, they can bring unnecessary offense. They were doing at the table what they were accustomed to doing in the world, going after their own pleasure. And again, think about the church in Corinth coming out of the culture which was dedicated to sensual pleasures. And unfortunately, we bring baggage into our faith assemblies, and that's what was happening there. Thirdly, it becomes a very poor witness to the outside world. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you what? If you love one another, right? John thirteen thirty five. How can we manifest that love if we constantly divide over things that divide the world into factions? You know, our personal preferences and cultural practices. Now, the next question, of course, is how did Paul address these divisions? What did he do? How did he address them? Go back to the text. The first thing that he did is what? What is the first thing that Paul did? He exhorted them. He exhorted them to unity. <clears throat> he said, now I exhort you, brethren, 
we are to admonish those who are schismatic. And unfortunately, you know, you may have had that experience in your experience with the Christian church. You may have found people who are nitpicking over everything, just constantly wanting to fight. Well, the scripture is very plain. In Ephesians 4, 3, we are to be eager to maintain the bond of unity in peace. Paul wrote to Titus telling him that if in any person who stirs up division, warn him once and then twice, but then have nothing more to do with him. Paul is going to address the issue, number one. It's not going to be left untouched. And unfortunately, we've had to have that experience here. I remember one particular time in the day school when there was a person who wanted to argue about everything, would interrupt you know, the meetings of the church and just debate, and wasn't healthy. Um, they had to be addressed. Number two, notice in the text, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 13, Paul says, is Christ divided? And of course not. No, that's the relevant issue. There are two reasons. Number one, we are the body of Christ. Just as one, the body is one and has many members, so we are all part of the body of Christ. And there has to be a unanimity and a dedication to that body and not a self-exaltation and self-aggrandizement where we elevate ourselves above each other based on personal preferences and cultural issues and what our brother said earlier, pride. So he reminded them that we belong to the body of Christ. The other reason it's relevant is to, to say that Christ is not divided is when a believer has Christ, he has all of Christ. No one needs to feel inferior or superior if Christ is really our great treasure. Does that make sense? If Christ is our treasure and we have inherited his riches, let's be content in that. Let's understand that. Let's dwell on that. Well, also, Christ is preeminent. Paul addressed that by talking about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. You look at verse 13. The third truth here that will undermine the base of disunity in Corinth and in our fellowship is this. Paul was not crucified for you. Christ was. This is what he means when he says, was Paul crucified for you? Paul tries right off the bat to destroy himself as a ground for boasting. I was not crucified for you. Christ and Christ alone. That has to have two effects. First, it has to have the effect that if we're going to boast about anyone, let it be the Lord. Right? Let it be the Lord. Compared to what Christ has done in dying for us, the distinctive of our beloved teachers, those who brought us to faith, those who shared the gospel with us, is minuscule. And we have to remember that as Paul said to the Corinthian church, they are servants on our behalf. Christ is preeminent. To elevate a human teacher to the point where the allegiance shatters the body of Christ means that we have lost sight of the infinite and overwhelming worth of a crucified Savior. The other effect of this truth should have on us is to remind us that our sin is so great that we need to be saved by nothing less than the hard execution of the Son of God as did every one of our teachers. You may love Bryce Beal and his style of presenting God's word to us. You may really 
preferred to have Ernie. Either way, they are Christ's servants for us. And we're to be thankful for that. And not be dismissive of a brother you know, who has a different gift. We need to rejoice in that. And remember that there are so many different ways that we learn and respond to God's word. And he's given us this rich panoply of teachers with different gifts and different styles. You know? And it's like somebody mentioned, church music. You may not like a particular song, but it's going to bless the socks off this brother or sister over here. <laughs> Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. Yeah. To boast in a man, to puff him up, and to puff ourselves up on his coattail means we've forgotten the dreadful condition we are all in without a crucified Savior. Also, we are baptized into Christ. Paul reminds us of that. The fourth truth is that he undermines the disunity by reminding us that we were baptized into the name of Christ, not Paul. By the way, did you notice how Paul's humanity comes through here? I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. It shows the wonder of God's inspiration through a human instrument. You know? And he may have had an amanuensis, may have been Stephanus, who is reminding, oh, by the way, don't forget the house of Gaius, you know, Crispus. And it's just a wonder of God's revelation to us that that's included in his word. It's no big deal who baptizes you. We're baptized into Christ. He refocuses them also on the wisdom of God, not eloquence, not eloquence. That reminds me, I need to turn my phone off. I don't think I did. You certainly don't need to hear my phone. Anyway, without too much speculation, we can conclude that the two main parties in Corinth were the Paul party and the Apollos party. The Paul party was saying that their man was their first. And again, you know, you have that heart affection toward those you know, who brought you into the faith, which is not bad. It's not a bad thing at all. And Paul responds in verse 17, look at verse 17, by saying that eloquence can nullify the cross. And again, that's part of the wisdom of the world. What is our heart drawn to? Is it drawn to the eloquence of an Al Martin? Is it drawn to the earthy bluntness of a Martin Luther? You know, what are you drawn to? Are we drawn to Christ? Are we drawn to Christ? We would not be nearly so prone to disunity and disharmony if we cared less for the accidentals of leadership, like oratorical skills, you know, and instead look through a preacher to where there's a spirit of crucifixion and a humility in there. Now, what do I mean by eloquence? Well, there, there's a character in one of Shakespeare's plays. It's Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2. Polonius is an advisor to the king and the queen. And Polonius is known for his eloquence, his lofty grand speech. And he's going to tell something that's very important to the queen. That her son is nuts. Here's how he does it. Polonius, 
This business is well ended. My liege and madam, to expostulate what majesty should be, what duty is, why day is day, and night night, and time is time, were nothing but to waste night and day and time. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit, and tediousness the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief. I think he blew it already, don't you? <laughs> Your noble son is mad, mad, call I it, for to define true madness, what is it to nothing else but be mad? But let that go. The queen's heard enough. She said, more matter, less art. <laughs> Get to the point. And Polonius says, Madam, I swear I knew use no art at all. That he is mad, tis true. Tis true, tis pity, and pity tis, tis true. A foolish figure, but farewell it, for I will use no art. Mad, let us grant him, and now remains. <laughs> all this to say, hey, queen, your son is bonkers. <laughs> but that eloquence that Polonius is foolishly known for, and he's a comic figure in, in Hamlet, you know, that eloquence, that lofty-sounding words, the academia, you know, is what some people are drawn to. But Paul refuses to use that. It's as if he's flying out of Evansville Airport, and he's got a couple of bags with him, and the people at the counter say, oh, is this all you're going to check? He said, well, I had some more bags, but I'm going to leave them behind. Well, what are they? Well, I'm going to leave eloquence behind and the wisdom of the world. <laughs> well, why are you doing that? Because I want the people in Corinth to see the power of God and not be persuaded by my words. And so he strips off all artifice. He strips off all fancy words and phrases. And he focuses on the foolishness of God, which is the gospel. Christ and him crucified, exactly. So, that's what we mean by eloquence. And by the way, here's a picture of Polonius and uh, one of... Actually, that's the king. That's not, uh, it's not Polonius. That's the king. And that's, uh, that's the, the mother, uh, Gertrude. Lovely lady. I think they took a color photograph of that. <laughs> Number six. The other, the other way that Paul addressed divisions is this. He reminds them that all things belong to us. Believers possess all things, not just the distinctives of favorite teachers. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 33, 23 says, so let, so let no one boast of men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You can see clearly here that Paul has never lost his concern in these three chapters with the boasting that was behind the divisions. I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Peter. Now he brings out the folly of this by saying, why do you puff yourself up? As though you had some special claim on one teacher, when in Christ they're all yours to begin with. And lastly, in this area, Paul addresses this division by focusing their attention and their glory upon God and God alone. What is Paul? He says, what is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So God should get the glory for all the results of ministerial labor and not men. So, brings us to our next point, which is this. We've talked about foolish controversies and divisions. 
We talked about the problems in Corinth. We've talked about how Paul addressed those. What are the divisions that we face today? In Tolkien's writings, characters emerge in the stories. In Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, there's one formidable character, Great Red Dragon, and his name is Smog. The dragon has taken over the lonely mountain, and the entire story of The Hobbit is a dramatic buildup of the teamwork of an unlikely and eclectic group to overcome the dragon. And the only way to do that is by storming the door and defeating the beast. Well, throughout history, the church has faced a number of controversies and a variety of dragons. Legalism, ecumenism, the veracity of God's word, which has corrupted so many churches and left them adrift. What are the divisions that cause controversy and schism in the church today? Rick. Okay. Versions of the Bible, translations of the Bible. What else? Small ones, big ones. Cessationism, continuationism, whether the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially the spectacular, the ecstatic ones, are in use today, should be used today. What are they? Are tongues a real language or are they the language of angels? That can divide churches. Carl. Free will and God's sovereignty. Women in leadership. Doctrine of election. Spiritual gifts, baptism. End times, eschatology, yeah. The views of eschatology. Politics from the pulpit, right? Alcohol, gay Christianity, if there is such a thing. How to address social justice issues. You know, there's, there's, there's a real ability to be confused over the terms that are used today. Uh, and we see that, for example, one that's very, uh, very recent, um, but has, you know, been around for actually a long time, I would say, since the, uh, the writing of the scriptures is that of race and ethnicity. And we're seeing it again today. When it comes to race, we are to believe that there are a multitude of races that make us up a sea of humanity. Although that's a widely held position, it's a relatively new position, one that does not square with the Bible. According to the scriptures, there's only one race, the human race, and we can all be traced back to one human being. The progenitor of the human race is Adam who with Eve populated the human race. It's best to separate race and ethnicity. Terms are important. And this idea of being careful with terms across the spectrum of issues that are outside of the church and being brought into the church are critically important. Bottom line is that we must always remember that there is an equality 
in creation that men and women of all races, of all ethnicities, I should say, are equal in being created in the image of God. Secondly, we are also equal in the fall. We have all become useless. We have all become depraved in every aspect of who we are. And there's an equality there. So we cannot be self-righteously judgmental over those whose sin might be slightly different than our own. And thirdly, we are equal in redemption. Now this identity is extremely important to remember. This identity of who we are and who those that are in our sphere of influence are is extremely important to remember. Ephesians 2, 13-14 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, right? Those who had the law and were entrusted with the law. Those who were religious and those who were irreligious and pagans and heathens. By God's grace through Christ, we are made into one. The terms are important. Our identity is important. And we need to let those biblical truths, who we are in Christ, be a solid foundation as we look at these divisive manners. Now, as we do that, there are four points that are very helpful. And they are these. Number one, we need to be committed to the sufficiency of Scripture as we address these issues, whether it's social justice, race, reparations, intersectionality, we need to be committed to the sufficiency of Scripture as our guide for our thinking. And number two, we need to be conversant. If someone is grieving over the way they've been treated because of their ethnicity, because of their sin. We need to listen, we need to understand, and we need to point them to Christ. Just as we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, we need to share the gospel with others. Right? We're not leaving people behind without hope. We're pointing to the King of Glory, the Prince of Peace. Right? Even if we disagree with them politically. I don't care if my Son-in-law is a socialist. Does he love Jesus? Does he love my daughter and my grandkiddos? I'm happy as a pig in mud. We need to pursue unity in the gospel of Jesus. Not pursue unity at all costs, but we need to pursue unity in the gospel of Christ. True unity will not come as a result of social justice agendas or other political agendas. It will only cause division and compromise with doctrinal fidelity. Only true unity comes as a result of seeing our union with Christ based upon his word. And fourthly, we need to be just. Now, I avoided using the term to seek justice. I use the term instead to be just. We need to be 
righteous. We need to stand for righteousness. Now, if God calls you as an individual to go after a social concern and you pursue that with your whole heart and you're loving Christ, you're loving God's people, and you're loving those that are outside, praise the Lord. But that doesn't give us the right to look down upon brothers or sisters who don't have that same passion. We need to be just. The call of Christians is to practice biblical morality, biblical truths, and to stand against sin, loving people and caring for them within society and within our spheres of influence. We must not discriminate against people by ethnicity or gender. We need to practice the love and compassion that we are commanded to do. So, next question. When are divisions right? When should an evangelical Christian separate from a body? Dan. So, Dan, yeah, Dan is saying, so if the leadership of a church is obviously violating Scripture, like having a woman in the pulpit, number one, having someone whose lifestyle is definitely uh, not biblical, is sinful, and they're unrepentant, you know, uh, then that's the time to leave. Yeah, what's, what's the message if you're staying there? Yeah, what's the message that you have as an individual if you're staying in that environment? Isn't it that you agree with that? You're comfortable with that? No? The question is asked far too often that days, and it betrays a problem in contemporary Christianity. Far too many church members have become church shoppers or church hoppers. The biblical concept of ecclesiology has given way to a form of consumerism in which individuals shop around for a church that meets their preferences and tastes. In the end, the only sufficient reason for separating from a church is a theological reason. Not because of music, not because the church doesn't have the programs that I want for my kiddos, not because they serve decaf instead of fully leaded coffee. And there was a church fight over that too. First hard issue we face in defining what kind of doctrinal issues merit that urgency, we must learn to sort theological and doctrinal issues as part of our Christian responsibility. One way is to have three different levels of theological urgency, each corresponding to a set of issues and theological priorities found in current doctrinal debates. The first level. First level theological issues would include those doctrines that are central and essential to the Christian faith. What are they? The hills to die on. on. What? Salvation. Salvation by Christ and Christ alone. What else? God's word. The inerrancy of God's word. I'm sorry? One more time. The Trinity, yes. 
Rick. Yeah. How Jesus was born, the incarnation. There are critically important doctrines that, you know, those are bedrock. And, you know, if a church departs from that, then that is a sound theological reason to leave. <clears throat> now, Matthew 10, verse 34 through 36, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. No in-law jokes now. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. There are three ways that the gospel can cause division. The gospel critiques the self-righteous. Those who are self-righteous will feel uncomfortable if they're brought in contact with their own sin, pride, and offenses against God. They can also be self-righteous and be offended when those who are sinfully involved in following their own passion and, and lusts are converted and not receive such a one. That self-righteousness says, oh, this person can't be saved. Yeah, I'm here to tell you that I could be saved <laughs> by God's grace. And so could you. Second, the gospel, the gospel, and focusing on the gospel, frustrates hobby horse riders. So a culture warrior who's frustrated that you're not political enough. The end times junkie who's saying, ah, oh, you haven't taught on eschatology in three weeks. What's wrong with you? Get with the times. <clears throat> you know, the self-styled academic who's frustrated that you're not quoting Al Martin enough. What's, what, what's up with that? You know, or, uh, you know, Al Mohler, excuse me, or Al Martin, either one. You know, the activist who's frustrating you don't give enough people social justice homework to do. You know, the gospel and focusing on the gospel can frustrate those attempts at causing division. That's why it's essential to stay there. And the gospel can irritate those people who don't want to change. So, the second set of orders, the first set, theological issues. The second set is distinguished from the first order set by the fact that believing Christians may disagree on second-order issues, though this disagreement may create significant boundaries between believers. What are these second-order doctrines? Give me an example. Baptism. Pardon? Baptism. Baptism. Can, can I love and appreciate R.C. Sproul, who was a pedo-baptist? Yes. All right. What else? Eschatology. Can I appreciate those who might have a different understanding of the millennia than I do? Do I need to mock them? No. Do I need to love and respect them? Yes. Can I disagree? Sure. But to break off fellowship? There are some groups who would. Eternal security, yeah. There are some people who would say, you know, that you know, eternal security is not accurate. I don't believe it. And there are people in this fellowship who have problems with some of the you know, basic reform doctrines of soteriology that we teach. But that doesn't mean we're going to kick them out or they need to leave. <laughs> Praise the Lord, we're all here to learn, right? The third area, Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship, even within local congregation, are those items of liberty. Those items of liberty. We should never separate from a church over third-order issues. Again, the only reason for departure 
is a theological one. That's the only re reasonable one. W.A. Criswell, um, I was saved uh, through the ministry of Jack Criswell in uh, the United Presbyterian Church in Hackettstown, New Jersey. His relative, W.A. Criswell, was the pastor of a church in Texas, huge church. I think it's the biggest Baptist church in the world. And they were having a division. They were having a split, and it was really ripping the church apart. Well, he met with some Nazarenes and came back one Monday, and out of his own pocket, he hired contractors and carpenters to come in and put kneelers in every pew in the church. On Sunday morning, when everybody came in for worship, they had a prayer meeting. By God's grace, that ended the split. And so, one of the things that we can do is we can pray to end splits. And that's our last question here. How do we preserve unity and avoid schism? And Robert Murray McShane was going off on vacation. And uh, as he did that, he was worried. He was going to be eight months away from his little congregation. And he was quite worried about what was going to happen. And he had the uh, son of uh, a friend come in, William Burns, as a matter of fact, um, come in and fill the pulpit while he was gone. While McShane was gone, there was an incredible revival. <laughs> And the church blossomed and grew. And he wasn't jealously guarding his own reputation or thinking that he was the only one that could serve the people of God and be used of God. Ernie Godshell has, an, has a little saying that he uses. Um, you, know, you put your finger in a glass of water and you pull it out and somehow the hole fills back up. We need to trust in God, not ourselves, and not in our favorite way of doing things, or our favorite people. We need to prioritize gospel truth. We need to prioritize the gospel. At the center of what Paul preaches to Corinth and to us is the bloody, criminal, shame-covered, torturous, scandalous cross of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of his message. Christ was insulted, mocked, ridiculed, scorned, derided, satirized, parodied, charactered, and then hung up like a piece of meat. Paul focused on the gospel as God's power. It was not the wisdom that the Greeks were looking for. It was not the spectacular power that some people were demanding. We need to hold fast to the one who called us by himself. If you go to the first section of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, part of the wonder of Paul is calling us to remember who called not only himself to be an apostle, but us to be in fellowship. We need to focus on that. And that's how we preserve unity and avoid schism. We can focus on Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our wisdom. He is our sanctification. And we boast only in Him.
We boast only in Christ. So, I've given you lots of writing today, and I apologize if you've cramped up, but I've also given you homework for next week. And I'd like you to read through those 12 ways to preserve Christian unity by Tim Challies. And uh, the sources are there on your last page as well. And next week we're going to be talking about unity and love. We're basically going to continue from disunity to unity and love. Right? Well, our time is up. I'll be back with you in a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this time that we can spend together. Lord, I pray that you would expose our pettiness, that you would show us the glories of Christ, that you would cause us to be so filled with love of him that our personal preferences would not be the hallmark of our fellowship with each other, but that you, Lord Jesus, would be the master of our heart. Thank you, O Lord, for giving us your Son and causing our eyes to be fixed on him, that we would see his beauty and his grandeur. Help us, O Lord, to worship you in purity and beauty and truth and righteousness as we join with your people and sing songs that our hearts would be united in your praise. For your glory, for a witness to the world, and for the edification of this body of believers. And we thank you in your son's name. Amen.